Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili, and today I'm in New York City with Brian and Bill to talk about demand for talent, how it's changing, and what boards, CEOs, and the rest of us can do now to prepare. We have created a managerial system and a reporting mechanism that disproportionately focuses on the wrong capital and focuses on financial capital, not human capital. Stay tuned. More coming up. Everyone's talking about the future of work and the potential for automation and artificial intelligence to transform jobs and working as we know it. But frankly, talent and talent shortages are not a new issue. It's not a newsflash that having the right people in the right roles is a big part of what drives an organization's success. Bill, you have spent years, possibly decades, maybe, researching and working on organizational issues. You got a doctorate in this stuff. Why this disconnect when it comes to making talent or human capital as high a priority as financial capital? What do you think? Well, good afternoon first, and thank you for pointing out the decades. (laughs) Um, Look, I think we have a really interesting conundrum. When we ask people, do you have enough talent? They almost universally say no. But as soon as they say that, then they go back to attending a capital review meeting and a financial capital review meeting or looking at KPIs around you know that quarter's performance. We have created a managerial system and a reporting mechanism that disproportionately focuses on the wrong capital and focuses on financial capital, not human capital. So we've grown multiple generations of leaders who are fixated on the point estimate of data around money, not that that's terrible, but don't spend nearly enough time on who who is actually leading the organization. What are the critical roles? What are the critical skill pools? And so, you know, we're spending a bunch of time helping leaders say, can we reboot how we lead with an equal, if not more emphasis on the scarce capital, human capital? Right, right. So you're starting out with a challenge that's tough. It might not be intractable, but it involves uh, short-term financial metrics and so forth. Anything that involves actual human behavior is going to be tough in practice. And then you layer in digitization and AI. Brian, how do those forces compound the challenge and what is at stake for companies that don't get this right? When we've gone through and worked with CEOs on setting the value agenda and figuring out where new value is going to come from in the company, you know, somewhere in the order of magnitude of 70 to 80 percent are somewhat involved in building of a digital business or capability. And those are the areas where we find that there are uh, gaps. I mean, so when we do the, the value analysis, we're looking at the top, you know, 25 to 50 roles that drive a disproportionate amount of value. And the way we typically do that is go down and break down the value agenda of the company. How are we going to make money in the future? And there are going to be parts of that that are new. There are going to be parts of that that are sustaining. And when we look at new, it's the new that is disproportionately in the digital and other space. You know, I, it's a really interesting thing for people to get their head around. So you say value agenda, what does that mean? And picking up what Brian was talking about, there's such a basic way of saying, what's our business as usual? If you were to do nothing different, how does the business make money today? And you could take an org chart and literally take the, the revenue or the profit and just write the number in the boxes and disaggregate it all the way down. And that's just basically protect the core. 
Now, for companies that are trying to improve things, they say, hey, we've got three or four things going on that kind of work across the company. Procurement, pricing, lean, or whatever. You could write them on the side and just write the little numbers in. Go on left to right and go, hey, look at that. I mean, it's a relatively small number across each of the units, but when we add them up, boy, that's a really big number. Should we think about a role for that? And that's, you know, improving the base business. Then you get into the really interesting thing that Brian's talking about, which is net new. So if you were to look at the company today, if you look at a company today, you'd have to draw a box in and go, that's the move when we're going consumer into China. That one there is going to be the new digital platform, right? And it doesn't exist, but somewhere you convince somebody to give you money for the plan and you should write that number in because the minute you ask for capital or you make a commitment to the board, you're on the hook for that number. So that's what the role should count for. You're a CEO and you're asking yourself this question, what's my supply demand ratio look like? Am I long? Am I short on hmm. talent? What's your first step? Yeah, I mean, sometimes what's interesting is, you know, we like to think of the strategy and looking at the value levers and kind of individually looking at the initiatives individually and figuring out where the roles and the value are. But sometimes in conversations with CEOs or CFOs or CHROs, they think about it in a different level of aggregation, different chunks. So one of the recent conversations we had, the leadership team was thinking about it in three ways. One was, hey, I've got this new attacker business that I need to create that over time may take over and integrate the new business, but I want it to be unconstrained by current processes, unconstrained by current IT platforms, and I need somebody to lead that business. Okay, well, that's the net new that, you know, we had talked about before. There's another piece that is, hey, I'm really interested in this digital and automation and future of work. And uh, to make that happen, I know I'm going to need to have maybe changes in the amount of people in digital areas in the company. I may need less people in the routine work. But they're like, hey, that feels like a discrete group. And then, hey, you're telling me the most important people in that are the people who are designing the new tech tools, and maybe one or two of the people that are actually driving the implementation. And then you're saying, hey, there's a part of the business that is not net new, that is not being hit by future of work. And you know what? I just need to make sure because procurement is my number one value capture that I've got the best procurement person in the world in that role. And sometimes by breaking it into those three chunks, so you're like, okay, I got your value agenda. I got where you're talking about the enablers and pieces, and I've got how those pieces fit against three different parts of my uh, agenda or how I'm thinking about the company. I mean, I might make one point where I think we regularly confuse people with roles and talent with broad skill pools. In many cases, organizations, the roles they have today are often an amalgamation that bears no resemblance to what they would have done if they were given a clean drop. And so part of it is get really clear in your head, what are the very few critical roles? And there's probably a couple dozen of them. That's it. Everything else probably sits in a skill pool a version of a similar common clustering of skills that are deployed different ways. And if you can get to that, it starts looking more homogenous. If it starts looking more homogenous, you can start finding types of people, not a person. And then I think one of the toughest conversations that leaders have to have, say in some skill pools, we are going to be long and we have too many people. So what does that mean when you're mapping current roles against future roles? And how do you get to that you're you're disaggregating at the role level rather than at the incumbent level oh yeah they take the incumbent out of it because we're attacking the role first and what do they really need to do we're more likely to try to make the role fit the person which is the 180 of what we're trying to do which is get really clear on the roles and then to decide whether or not the person fits 
right? It, it is a relatively unique opportunity when you recast how you're going to make money and recast how you're going to run the place. The next question is, well, now who gets to run the place? And if you're really looking to maximize the opportunity that you're given with this new strategy and a new approach to how you're going to run the place, surely you should acknowledge that the people who got you here, some of them are just not going to get you there. Right? And then that's the challenge with incumbency. It almost puts the, the fog on about that. And the thing that you know we hear time and time again in talking to CEOs about what's your biggest regret, not moving fast enough on talent. You know, We did a look back of 170 private equity deals uh, within uh, one PE firm's portfolio. And we looked at how frequently uh, CEOs made it all the way through. And fewer than half made it all the way through. But those private equity firms that moved on the leadership sooner because they knew what the value was going to be in the future, what the drivers were and therefore what the role was, and that was different than the CEO that got them to where they were, those that moved on it faster had higher first-year returns, higher second returns, and higher total returns on exit. They recognize that, hey, moving quickly on incumbents that don't fit what the new job is drives value. And what we're saying is, hey, let's just bring science to that. Let's figure out what is it exactly that you need the new folks to do, and then let's assess against it. And if the incumbent is great, great. If the incumbent isn't, look, you're going to realize the incumbent isn't six months from now, or 18 months from now, or 24 months from now, and the sooner you do it, I mean, we do find that the better fit in the role drives better returns. Right. So the phenomenon you're describing also describes active resource allocation generally, right? Like we know that companies that take a dynamic approach to resource reallocation are going to outperform those that don't. But that's, again, something we've been discussing for years. There's so much published research on the benefits of active resource reallocation, and CEOs just aren't able to do it. Talent is a portion. That's one important segment of resource. Well, talent pays more yeah. when you move it fast, you know, in terms of a differential return. I just wanted to build on something that Brian was saying, because I think this is important. Every time we say trying to figure out what kind of person you need or does the person fit, we're talking about assessment at its core. Many, many organizations have no problem assessing people as they're coming into the door. They get very uncomfortable assessing incumbents. It's almost like once you're there, you have a birthright. It gets in the way, and you think, oh, well, this is, these are the cards I have. Well, you don't have to. You could reallocate them. Wouldn't they be better suited to being in a role that more closely aligned with their skills and their own aspirations? I mean, I think sometimes we convince people they're in a track and they have to stay there, and they're not happy about it. They need to be liberated as well. I think one of the most interesting things here as we think about you know, the role of the employer, the role of... Uh, the relationship between the employer and the employee, I think we've spent the past 150 years making people more like machines. And so if you look at it in the office setting, you know, think about office space and, you know, the TPS reports coming back. That was funny because that's how the office world worked, much like the manufacturing world worked. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing that as the routine work, those TPS reports are now automated. I'm still looking for my stapler. But yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the I'm TPS... I'm in the basement. <laughs> the, 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 uh, you know, the TPS reports are automated. The, the What is important now is a different set of skills. They tend to be more interpersonal skills. They tend to be um, more creative skills, things that are more innately human. And so as you're thinking about 
what a company does and how a company invests individuals. It is really less about, hey, can I teach you exactly how to fill out the TPS report? It is now, how can I teach you social interaction skills? How can I help you progress as a human being? How can I help you move? And so what we're seeing more broadly is the conversation changing from, hey, as human replacement for machine, you know, what is the hourly rate I'm going to negotiate with you to how do we think about development of a human being so that in a changing world of work, our workers can adapt alongside the company and that we can do this together. And I think it's a really different debate. Now, wages and benefits are still important even in that conversation, but it's also recognizing the broader human development piece that I think is super interesting and uh, is a very fruitful um a very fruitful avenue to explore. Sure. And so how do you think these soft skills can effectively be assessed? Because those are more difficult to assess as the, you know. Uh, It's a great question. And it's one we spend a ton of time on. Since I've joined McKinsey and we've been working together, we've seen a absolute sea shift in how we think about assessing human potential and personality and indicants of performance, right? Now, there are still some basic things, right? If you can see it and observe it, that's awesome. So you can start finding combinations of things that you can see directly, like what's your background, what you know, things that are certifiable or skills like you either are a a professional engineer or you're not. You are a CPA or you're not. You know how to code in Python to a certain level or you don't. The attributes one, which is this personality one, that's really interesting. That's seen a ton of change. It used to be you'd have to sit down and answer like 400 items and sometimes you weren't even sure and through long laborious validation procedures now we're seeing really cool things like gamification of this really oh it's amazing something as simple as like i'm going to build an underwater ecosystem okay first question about games how do you take the gender out of it don't make it about shooting blowing things up or playing sports make it about problem solving right then you can say but hey not just playing the game and the results we're interested in the way in which you take in information the speed at which you make choices how much you're willing to take risk. So there was a game in uh, in our age called SimCity. Mm-hmm. Okay, I played SimCity. I loved it. One of the very first things I did, because I'm well, a bit of a geek, I wanted to understand the algorithm. So I would go to the tax bar, and I would raise taxes. And Hang on a second. Again. You yeah. were trying to understand the algorithm of Sim, yeah. SimCity? <laughs> yeah, I was. I were was. in graduate school? I, I do the time? same thing when I play Madden. You're procrastinating frankly, on I your dissertation. Yeah, okay. Players. Selection matters. So in SimCity, I would take the tax all the way up until I'd get a riot. Because a riot became uh, destabilizing and you couldn't build anything. But if you kept it just below a riot, you'd maximize revenue. Now, why, why bring that up? That spoke more about my own tolerance of risk and the way in which I explored data before making a decision. Someone who was more impulsive than me would have just done it and not bothered to try to find the outer marker. So the whole point about this is it's something as, as engaging as a game. We can find out a lot about a person. So now we're marrying assessment with the potential employee experience and getting a wealth of knowledge. Is this the kind of tech equivalent of how many ping pong balls will fit in a 747? This, some of them can be, like what Bill's describing, you know, the, the underwater ecosystem is a problem-solving test, similar to that. There are those that also, you know, cue on different things like social awareness and ability to, you know, identify emotions and others. So there's one game uh, by a company called Knack called Wasabi Waiter. And you are a waiter in a Japanese restaurant. And what do you know? The kitchen gets backed up. And you have a process you're supposed to follow. So you can very quickly see as you prioritize what you do 
Are you somebody that's following the rules even though the kitchen is backed up? How quickly do you notice the person who's fuming in the side of the restaurant? How quickly do you get the social cues? And you can see patterns of not just the order, but the speed with which you pick it up, how quickly you move different pieces. So one game can create thousands of points of data. And then when you compare that versus others who've taken the game that are successful in the roles that you're going, you can say, hey, there are patterns of people who picked up on these things earlier look a lot like people who are really good in this kind of consultative sale. Yeah, that's really interesting. What does it mean for folks who are, you know, super tech driven and might not actually or maybe famously um, deficient in social cues and really focused on task? I guess it just means slotting those folks. Yeah. (laughs) So I'll give you two that come together, right? Let's say I, I put a Lego set down. If you put a set in front of the person, do you build the set or not? Some people will build the set as specified in the instructions. Others can't imagine doing that. They just empty the pieces out. They look at the picture and go, yeah, I can make it better. Me, I was somewhere in between. I would build it, the set once. And then I'd start adding to it or tear it apart and do something different. One of my children would not build to the instructions ever. He found it so, so unbelievably constraining that he didn't want to do it. That's why we had the box there. Now, that tells you about the person whether or not you're a rule follower or not. Some jobs really need rule followers. Some need creative thinkers. Now what happens if you put the set in between two people? How do they divvy up the work? You want to know whether or not someone's naturally facile at working with others? Give them a task without any instruction on how to divide the work. Do you just break it up and go, I'll do the first bit, you do the second bit? There's I'll a gender make... component in this, though. For because, sure. I oh, mean, that, <laughs> that dynamic can be overtaken by, you know, an alpha guy. It it, it depends a lot. I mean, you're going right to the heart of assessment, which is how do you, in designing the assessments, be very, very clear on what you're measuring and have that validated in a way to make sure that you don't have any bias built in for men or women or people of different uh, backgrounds. So, I mean, that is core. And what we're finding on the more gamified side is people will say that what you get is you get a more diverse slate when you assess using their games than you do in other ways because we've got the algorithm, we've got the way of doing it, and then we've tested it to make sure that the test doesn't have any gender bias. And in the case Bill talked about, if that was well-constructed, you may actually be looking to weed out the dominant behavior. Let's get back to the CHRO role. It seems like there is a slightly different role for the CHRO in this sort of configuration analysis. It elevates the CHRO role into a higher status than has previously been the case. Speak a bit about that. The great CHROs would object with that statement. The truly great CHROs will say, I've done this, and the idea of elevating the function hey, I elevated it 15 years ago and I've got this great working relationship. The The challenge is for every five CHROs who truly have been operating at that level, you have another 50 who said, I have been elevated and I'm now invited to the leadership team meetings and I participate in the leadership meetings on what talent is and I cooperate with my CFO because I run my HR budget by the CFO before I take it to the CEO. So you have a set of folks that think they're elevated because they're in the meeting and they're having the conversations, but they're not talking value. They're not looking at the organization and saying, 
hey, you know what? If we're really going to grow in China, we need a different person there and we're going to accelerate this. And so, you know, we work with forward-looking CHROs who are like, hey, you know what? I can raise 10 billion, or sorry, 10 million in EBITDA from sales by letting me go after assessment. That is just a way different conversation than, hey, I'm having the conversation we added to the performance review this year to talk about each person's individual. Va- like, But it, it's a tricky conversation because the great ones bristle when you say elevate the role. Yeah, I, I think the identity is the biggest difference, right? I mean, I would say when Dave Ulrich first wrote his stuff, he was talking about strategic HR. Hey, hey! by the way, we are uh, many minutes into this when Dave Ulrich finally came up. Thank you, Dave. You're welcome. <laughs> but, you know, this this idea of you have a seat at the table, it was almost like you needed permission. I mean, that was issue one, right? And then you had then you had people who were being more custodians or more cops or, you know, I'm thinking we're just missing the point. If I were hoping for a mindset shift, I'd say is stop acting like the CHRO and start acting like an officer. You are an officer of the firm. You need to know how that place makes money. You need to know what's really at risk. So we, we held an event here in New York last week for 23 private equity backed company CHROs. And also we invited several private equity operating partners who are responsible for the talent in the portfolio. And that was the most amazing group of CHROs I've ever seen in a room together. I mean, at a break, somebody came up and said, hey, one of your guys slipped and talked about operating income. All we care about is EBITDA. And you're just like, okay, yep, you're right. We'll fix that. Thank you. Like, we're, we're on. And they were talking about, hey, I'm a roll up of this many companies. Here's how I think about talent is going to drive value across. Like, this is how we're going to do it. And each of them, to a person, could pull it back to the specific agenda, each of them to a person. And it was just a totally different level of conversation that was talking very much about, hey, I'm responsible for delivering value. And it was it was a phenomenal, um, it was a phenomenal set of discussions, but it was so remarkable how those people were thinking compared to a room of other CHROs, which we convene, where maybe it's two or three in that room. So, uh, Brian, do you attribute that shift? Do you attribute the um, the richness of the discussion that you had and the super clear alignment of talent to value to a delta over time or to that particular set of CHROs and the fact that they were in private equity, et cetera? So it was it sector-driven, or do you think it was you had had that same conversation a decade ago, as you may well have? So it's definitely shifted over the past yeah. decade. And I think what private equity firms are recognizing is it is harder and harder to get a deal that's not fairly priced on the front end. So they are actually adding value by making the place better. And they have ruthlessly gone through to figure out what are the levers of making it better. And talent is one of the most consistent levers to make the place better. And so now you're seeing operating partners focused on talent where that wasn't the case as broadly as it is now 10 years ago. You're seeing CHROs being asked about it, being driven into this in a way that they haven't thought about. So I definitely think over the past 10 years, this is something that has picked up in private equity. And I think as they start to see more and more returns from this. I think you're going to see that pick up even more outside. So, you know, I think the next 10 years, I'm hopeful that that same kind of shift is going to happen. I'm curious, what was the percentage of women in the room who received CHROs? Majority women. There is a preponderance of female 
CHROs. Is that correct? Bill's shaking his head. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. I think you're right. I was, I was shaking my head more because it irritates me that we've confused diversity and inclusiveness with that's the female slot on the C-suite. The concentration of female talent in HR, not that having a concentration of female talent is bad. It's just it becomes a that's where we put highly qualified, talented women. But it's the idea of imprinting. So we do imprinting when kids are in school. That already changes the funnel for us based on what school they went to, what degrees they got, and whether or not they go to grad school or they're ushered off in the need to have a family or something. So we're already messing. You know, we're taking with the 52% of the population and messing it. And then you get to work, and now we have assigned roles. Like, well, that's where, we, that's where women tend to go. And, oh, you're really good with people. HR, give me a break. How about don't be a jerk? How about learn how we make money? How about if we're committed to running the place in a way where we have multi-tooled, multifaceted leaders, everybody's going to take a tour through. You're going to figure out how we make money. You're going to go figure out how we make our stuff. You're going to go figure out how we buy our stuff. You're going to pay attention to our talent. Learn something. Pick people based on their knowledge, skills, attributes, and experiences. Not some preconceived nonsense. And to me, you know, I'd love to see that as a stepping stone to the CEO. If you're really thinking about driving the value agenda, and you're really thinking about that this is coming through people, and you have a diversity of other experiences, maybe some operating experience, maybe some sales experience in your background, then you go to the CHRO role where you're talking about value, and then move from the CHRO to CEO. I would love to see folks um, thinking more that way. And just anecdotally, when I hear about CHRO searches, which I do from time to time, one of the things that I hear more in the searches now than I did five years ago is, no, this is on track for, I'm not saying that's the majority of searches, but you hear that now certainly more than you did before. So I have a little bit of hope in, you know, while you wish there was diversity more broadly, if we really make this role a value role, this should be a core source of talent for the next generation of women CEOs. Fantastic. And we will end there. Guys, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Good time. And folks, we would love to hear from you. If you have questions for Brian and Bill, please write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We may select your question to answer in an upcoming show. Again, that's McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com.